I had an amazing conversation today with Dr. Megan Miller. She is a wealth of information. And we talk all about the early start Denver model, which is an amazing resource when you're working with little ones and such a great resource for autistic students. So you want to tune in. She gives us kind of an introduction. And we also really talk about why that social interaction piece Um, And sometimes speech therapists, we may call this joint attention, but why that back and forth exchange is absolutely key to all types of communication for all of our students. It's such great information. If you don't know Dr. Megan Miller, she is the creator of the Do Better Movement and the founder of the Do Better Collective. She earned her PhD in special education and behavior analysis at The Ohio State University in 2015. She is actually from my neck of the woods here in Ohio. And her early training in behavior analysis occurred at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism as a volunteer intern in 2003. She has taught courses in behavior analysis and special education as an adjunct professor for several universities. She has co-authored journal articles published in the journal of Developmental Physical Disability, Behavior Analysis and Practice, and Teaching Exceptional Children. She also co-authored The Seven Steps to Earning Instructional Control with Robert Schramm, BCBA. She regularly presents to professional organizations around the globe as an invited speaker. And in 2018, she started the Do Better Professional Development Movement to improve access to training and best practices in the field of behavior analysis via an online community webinars and a podcast. And she really is just a thought leader in the field, but she gives great actionable tips and strategies that you can start using with your own students or your own children tomorrow. Buckle up. This is a good one. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 49. Wow, I can't believe it. Episode 49. That time is flying. We have a great episode today. I'm super excited to introduce you to, if you're not uh, familiar with her, Dr. Megan Miller from the Do Better Collective. Thanks so much for joining us, Megan. It's so nice to have you on. Thank you, Rose. I'm excited to be here. And I feel like I think maybe the first time I ever met you or actually just heard you talk was at Ohaba, like a very, very long time ago when Ohaba, maybe you were at Ohio State doing some coursework there. Is that where you got your PhD or... Yes. Yep. At Ohio State. (laughs) Okay. And I think maybe I heard you doing... I teach the ethics class here at Kent State. I actually just... I'm teaching it right now. We're revamping it for the the new ethical code. So I was just working on that. But I think I heard you do an ethics panel. And I was like, I like her. You're just like (laughs) very like, you know, free flow. You have a lot of good information. And then we've just kind of done some different collaborations, have some mutual friends too. But if people are new to you, can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey, how you got started in the field and kind of what you're up to now. 
Sure. That can be a really long answer, but I'll keep it short. So the short version is I went to John Carroll in Ohio for my undergrad and had an internship at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism. And that's, that's how I sort of got into the field. I didn't really know that you could go to school for behavior analysis. And I found out that you could. And I moved down just on a whim to Florida and went to Florida State in Panama City. Had no idea that it was one of the best programs in the country and world. Yeah. <laughs> John Bailey was there, no clue who he was, wow. just went down there and loved it. I learned a lot about the science and improved my skill set around autism because that's the primary population I work with. And then pretty much since then, I've been on my own. I had one, I had one job, well, two jobs where I worked with other people, but I just <laughs> do better on my own, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I had my own company for a few years in Virginia. I went to get my PhD. I had a child and decided I didn't want to run an in-home practice anymore. So I stepped away from that. And since then, so since like 2018, I've been mostly focusing on coaching, training, mentoring, all of those fun things. I was traveling the world and had stepped back from that for 2020, which worked out because COVID (laughs) happened. Right, starting to travel a little bit more again now too. So I mostly focus on content creation to help broaden skill sets, both relating directly to behavior analysis, but also looking at similar fields and how we can synthesize information from other fields to improve our practices. That's great. And I think what I love about you is that I would call you like a thought leader in the field uh, because you just bring up really good ideas before anybody else is really talking about them. I feel like sometimes people might be thinking little thoughts in their head. And then I see you at a conference and you're talking about them. So I thought it was so interesting. I actually just took Dr. Hanley's, the 10-hour, the PFA. I work three days a week as a speech therapist in a school district here in Ohio, which is an amazing, very progressive district. And they allowed me to take that course. But it, I was so funny. I was like, this is a who's who in the crowd. It was like you. It was like Ryan. You know, It was all these like really amazing people. So I'm sure that was a really cool uh, training. I would love to get him on the podcast too. Just because I think you know some speech therapists may not know about you and your work and you just have a lot of good information to share. So thanks for coming on. I'm excited to chat. So I know today we're going to talk about the Early Start Denver model, which I'm excited to talk about. I just actually... This will air in December, but we are launched a toddler course that's all about working with toddlers and preschool age autistic students. And so it's a five-hour course. It's all about communication. That's all that we focus on. Um, But in one of the modules, I do talk about assessment. And we talk about it just a little bit. But I'm excited to kind of dive into it today because it's something newer for me too. I definitely... One of my go-to tools is definitely the VB map. But working with younger students, I definitely am looking to kind of broaden up what I'm using for assessment. And so I wanted to include that because I know a lot of parents might be getting assessments and they might be using this. And I work with some speech therapists who use this in their clinical practices as well. So I'm excited to talk about it today. But can you tell us a little bit about the Early Start Denver model? Sure. So the Early Start Denver model, the book that's also the manual came out in 2010. And as soon as it came out, I was reading it and contacted them for materials, for training. They had this whole thing where you could, they would send you Vimeo videos and PowerPoint slides. And we did that with the team I had in Virginia. So we were one of the early adopters of trying to implement Early Start with our clients. And it's really designed for birth Mostly like birth to three or four, but they do say you can go up to five. Mm -hmm. And it's based on research and behavior analysis and the developmental literature. 
there was so funny. There was actually, I wanted to find out because I haven't stayed on top of, they, they're constantly putting out research. So I yeah. haven't done a, like a lit review lately on it. So before the podcast, I looked it up and on their website, they have 43 studies published from 2008 to 2021 relating to early start. And I can send you the link to that yeah. if you want to put it in the show notes. One of the studies, like one of the most recent ones from 2020, but I didn't get to read it for today, is a thing that I post on Facebook all the time. <laughs> it's about if early start is re- is connected to behavior analysis. Like, can you consider it applied behavior analysis practice? Mm-hmm. And it's it's from Vivanti, who's one of the key researchers, and they go through the seven dimensions. And I have a whole entire like post that I made <laughs> and added to some presentations I do because people are constantly saying it's not behavior analytic. Then you find out those people haven't even read the research. They haven't read the book. They've learned nothing about it. It's just they see the authors, Sally Rogers and Geraldine Dawson, aren't behavior analysts. So they just assume it can't be behavior analytic. But that's one of the things I love about it, especially coming as a speech language pathologist. There's It's a multidisciplinary approach. So they really emphasize the importance of having speech, OT, behavior analysis, education, parents, of course. Parents, yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, the whole thing, they, and they even recommend like to have a case manager who sort of helps everyone come together and get on the same page with everything. And the other nice thing about it, it's, a, it's an assessment. Like There's an assessment component to it. And then there's an actual treatment model, a framework to work off of that, you know, they studied to see how effective that piece of it was, not just the assessment portion. So I like how it puts both together. And then in comparison to the VB map or the ABLES or some of the other assessments that are out there that behavior analysts might be familiar with, it really breaks skills down so much better. So there's areas in there for like pre-communicative skills and pre-linguistic skills that we just don't even assess or attend to unless we've been trained elsewhere. It's definitely not in the VB map or the ABLES or any right. of those assessments we typically would look at. So that's one of the things when I first read the book that really jumped out at me is how they conceptualize imitation and how they look at communication. The later steps, it's very similar. There's a lot of focus on requesting mm-hmm. and even like stimulus, stimulus pairing, like imitating the child and trying to echo and use um, what they're already saying, pair that up with other things. But but there's so many steps before that. And there's so mm-hmm. many steps in imitation that we just don't even attend to either. That And they conceptualize imitation as communication. So that and that's huge because a lot of behavior analysts, a lot of teachers, a lot of parents don't think of the, we think of imitation as we do it to learn, to observe people and learn and copy what they're doing. But there's a whole separate function around communication. And that's one of the things I really like about early start because if you're missing that piece and then you're trying to work on requesting or other more advanced skills, you're not going to get there. If they don't have the communicative function of just engaging with that reciprocal back and forth imitative type interaction. Yeah, I think that's so great. The one point you had made just about BCBA is not maybe not being open to this as being, you know, with the science of applied behavior analysis. I actually in my ethics class right now, we're talking about Matthew Broadhead's article about how do you interact with others who are non-behavioral professionals. 
And I love this line he has in that article. He says that you should not immediately say, where's your research for that? Because that erodes the professional relationship. And I really love that line. And I talk about it all the time because it's so true. It's like, we want to be collaborative. And that's the thing with Early Start Denver model, what I love and like the speech therapy part of my brain is always focused on that shared interaction. Like I have a private practice, so I see some kids in their home and I know parents are so concerned about their child talking, the actual act of talking. But we know, and that's kind of my next question, that this idea of social interaction is so very important. I think speech therapists get a lot of background in that, but still may not feel comfortable talking to a parent and saying like, hey... This type of back and forth, this type of social reciprocity, your child, we may not be working on verbal imitation, you know, Apple, you know, then you say it. Um, but this is really where communication starts, right? This type of engagement. And so I sometimes I think, I think back to myself when I was 23, because I actually worked at the learner school for three years, not my first year out, but it was like three years after that. And you know, like you just don't learn those types of things. You know, it's things that you kind of learn as you're going. Cause I remember my supervisor at the learner school saying, Well, you should just work on joint attention with a student that I had that would come back crying. And I was like, Okay. I mean, what does that even mean? You know, when you're first in the field, you just don't know. But can you speak to that? Like, why is that social interaction piece so very, very important that we start there? Sure. And I think, again, that's a piece that I've learned about from attending trainings outside of behavior analysis and, and speech. I, I, well, sort of. The one training I went to was with Emily Rubin, who is a speech language pathologist, yeah. I believe. She helps. Um, not help. She worked on the certs model and she's kind of with that group with Barry mm-hmm. and sure. Amy yeah. Weatherby. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so she is a speech language pathologist, but more from like the autism expert side of things than like mm-hmm. you're sit in a room doing speech therapy side of yeah, things. Yeah. Right. Uh, but anyway, so what the research has shown for young children, especially infants and toddlers, is that they learn through play and social interaction. So the uh, Early Start Denver model specifically highlights the research of Cool KUHL from 1996, I believe, that showed toddlers who engaged in play acquired new skills faster than if they weren't doing that in a play-based setting. And so just from that alone, if, if there's people that are really heavily research-focused, if we know that young children are learning skills in this format, then it would make sense to try to frame how you're engaging with them in that way. And then additionally, this isn't specific to Early Start necessarily. But for me, it's I do a lot of work with observing parents interacting with their children, whether it's for the, the work I do with Do Better. I also do research. And what I've noticed is if you watch infant-toddler interactions... Most of the social aspects, when there's not any sort of difference in social interaction, they're led by the child. The child's initiating pretty much everything. So parents don't have to have a skill set around that. Teachers don't need to, really, adults don't at all. We just can like be present and, mm-hmm. and follow their lead. But if that's an area that isn't developing for some reason, a lot of adults don't initiate it either. Our go to is just to get in there and start, like you were saying. Let's just model words for them and let's <laughs> put flashcards in their face and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So to me, it makes it even more critical that adults learn how to be silly, how to play, how to have fun. So we can set up those opportunities. If we know from the research, they're more likely to learn when it's social and play-based. And the child isn't initiating that kind of learning. As adults, we need to learn how to do that, you know, instead of just sitting down in front of them with flashcards and things like that. And it can be hard. I was not 
it is not a go-to for me, even though I babysat and I've always loved children. Yeah. I much more definitely follow the kids lead or I was like, let's sit down and do some flashcards. It took being around other creative out of the box adults that are just goofy um, or watching like YouTube videos and things uh-huh. to really get that skill set developed. Yeah, I think that's that's important to note. And you know, the one thing I had read something and I can't remember where, but they were saying that oftentimes parents who have children who either have autism or have a delay in that type of social, they may have in the beginning been interacting with the child, but over time, the child doesn't respond. And it almost acts as a punisher where then the parent is not engaging as much because maybe they think the child doesn't want to, or they're not into that. You know, So it was really interesting because it's almost like if the child's not engaging, then it changes the parent's behavior. But I totally agree where you know I do some like business coaching for people who are speech therapists or and BCBAs and they're starting to do ABA in their practice and one of the people that I was working with you know had said you know uh, to the RBTs like can you just pair with the child maybe do some natural environment teaching things like that you know when the student was just coming into the center and and the the RBTs had a really hard time with that but it is I always found that when I was working in non-public programs and I continued to do that till I started ABA speech It's just those unstructured programs, whether it was an unstructured program I had set up for a young learner or an unstructured kind of like vocational or communication program I had set up for an older learner, those never got worked on as much because they were like the outside of the box. They were like, to me, it's like, oh, this is amazing. We can get out of the classroom. We can navigate the larger school environment. We can talk to people we see in the hall. To me, that is like where communication happens, right? Outside of the therapy room. But to other people who are more comfortable with the sit down, the flashcard, this is what I'm working on, my binder, my program sheet, these things can be hard. And I think it's okay to say that. Like, I have three kids of my own, and, you know, I like to work with kids, but you have to really get into an element and feel like you have some go to ways to work on these things. So if somebody's kind of listening, or sometimes I think even parents might feel really defeated. Like I, you know, I was talking with a parent and we were reading Pete the Cat and I was in the home with this young client. And you know, Pete the Cat and his white shoes, which a lot of people know that book. And if you don't, it's a good one. But you know, I was like reading it and I started and it was so exciting. And um, this student does use some words to communicate. We're working on pointing and all the things. And I started the book and he had never seen it before. So he was excited at first. And then he kind of left the area, right? Because I'm working in his like living room. And the mom was like very concerned and, you know, wanted to like make sure he was sitting and he was attending. And, you know, I had to do some parent coaching and say, like, it's okay. Like, he'll come back. I'm going to keep reading. Like you said, I'm going to use an animated voice. I'm going to be excited. Like these are the things we're going to do and he'll come back. And he did, you know, like every kid is going to have their own way. And then over time, you know, the child does sit with me longer. You know, that's kind of what my goal is that kind of social piece. But can you talk to people if they're feeling like a little unsure, like, well, what activities can we do, you know, to work on that social interaction piece? Of course. And that's one of the things I love about Early Start Denver model because it provides a framework for that. So a lot of times when people think about naturalistic and play-based things and child-led interactions, they're like, but then the child just runs the show and no learning happens, you know, and they get upset about that. But ESDM provides a framework with joint activity routines. So the whole entire structure of your session, once you've chosen your goals, is to build your activities around these joint activity routines. So there's four parts to it. The first part is to have your initial setup, which is usually observing the child and seeing what they're interested in doing. 
The second part is to develop a routine. So usually, especially early on, you're just imitating the child and developing a routine. So if it's a ball, you're like rolling the ball back and forth. Some children might want to be spinning wheels on a car. That's fine. You flip the car over and spin a wheel, spin the wheels next to them, but you're just building in that routine. And then the third part is to have variations. So once you've established the routine, the adult will lead varying what's happening. So if you're rolling the ball, maybe you start bouncing the ball or throwing the ball. If you're rolling the ball, maybe you do it slow or you do it fast, you do it hard or you do it soft. So you're, you're putting in these small changes, but it's still the same activity. And that opens up a ton of opportunities for different communication. The child with whether it's gaze shifts or pointing or vocals can start communicating. Maybe they want the ball to come to them softly or hard or fast or slow, you know, those types of things. And for a lot of the learners that we work with, there's a lot of rigidity even early on. So it starts to build in that flexibility of like, oh, we're not just going to roll the ball for an hour. And then with the number three, with the variations that can also keep their interests a little bit longer. So you can pull in some more goals as you're doing it. um, And you're not just like going from one thing to another every 20 seconds. And then the last part's just the closing. So with some children, you can kind of see their motivation slowing down, they're responding more slowly. So you would close out that activity and move on to the next. For some children, they do the same thing the whole entire session. So you might have a support in place, like a timer or something like that to say like, okay, after five minutes, we're going to put this away and then go play with something else. And again, you just your whole entire session just follows those four steps. And I think that is, is the one of the key missing pieces that people need. Like you said, a lot of people do a lot better when there's a binder and there's something to follow. So you have those four steps. You can follow that. But then you have to, you know, be flexible and sort of work your way around whatever the the child is interested in. For me, there's two other big things. Again, they're not necessarily talked about in early start, but I've just experienced from observing parents and being a parent myself. I think to really promote social interaction when working with students, whether it's birth to three or older, it's critical to set our own ideas aside and really connect with the child based on where they are and what is of interest to them. Far too often, we come into activities with our own biases of how things should go. We already know how we want to do Mr. Potato Head, how Mm -hmm. we're going to paint the picture. We're so excited to intersperse those targets. You know, We have this whole lesson plan set out, right? And then we miss out on key opportunities to connect with our clients or our own children. They're looking at certain things. They're trying to make it a whole different routine and we just completely miss it. And for me, I think about how aversive it would be to constantly have someone trying to get you to stop the things you're enjoying. So if I'm the child and there's a certain way I want to play with Potato Head and there's this adult just constantly trying to get me to do it differently, why would I want to be around them? Like, How is that going to promote social interaction? And there's so many messages sent by that too of like how you see the world is wrong and like you can't do things the way you want. You have to do it this way. So that I think is key. And then the other piece is Just in general, we need to make sure we're giving that space. We always have this long list of things we're trying to get through, whether again, it's a parent trying to get through their day or an interventionist trying to get through their treatment goals. But we need to give space and like slow down, observe, just kind of see what the child's doing, join them where they are. And then once we've again established that routine, we can start to mix things up and develop that reciprocity around their preferences and then trying to mix in ours. Because of course, the world 
we have to help people learn that it doesn't revolve around them entirely, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like we can't just constantly be like, you get all the things you want. We need to have this back and forth. That is what a social interaction is. But I see far too often, I see adults talking at doing things to little ones, especially, and they completely miss all the amazing opportunities they would have for fun if they would just slow down and notice what playful interactions the child is. I mean, they're not... I think this is where the difficulty comes in. Their playful interactions are not what... If I'm a neurotypical mm-hmm. and my child is neurodiverse, they're not what it, what I would have thought of, right? But mm-hmm. so that's where we have to be flexible and open to like really keying in. Okay, what are you doing and how can I join that with you and become part of that. And then we can shift and have these back and forth interactions. Yeah, I love that so much. And that's... I put together this new toddler course and I talk about a lot of these things you're talking about. Like I talk about be observant because I think that's one thing like I'm still a treating therapist a couple days a week. And I think sometimes you're just so consumed with... you know, Especially when I work in a public school, right? It's like, okay, I may not be with one student, although I work in a great district. So usually I am with just one student. You know, I may be thinking about an IEP that I need to make, you know, like right later, um, you know, a parent phone call that I had. There's so many different things that we layer on top that I love that Hanley talk too, because I think he talks a lot about just being in the moment. And I mean, that's why I like to take professional development because I'm always trying to learn, but it's just so elementary, right? When we were learning in school, like being a speech therapist, you're just so consumed with. The child. You're so consumed with engagement. And I think sometimes once you've been in the field or you've just been doing this a while, or you have this history with this learner of maybe this is how the sessions go, that you're not engaged like that. That's why I love my private practice. I have just a couple, a handful of clients that live right here in my own community. That's all I have time for. But I love it because the one kid I'm seeing uh, is diagnosed with autism. And I've just had to like create my own little data sheet with a lot of the different things from Early Start Denver model and really try to be in the moment. And you're, that's right. It's like the other thing I talk about a lot is to be flexible because I do have an idea of things I might want to touch on. But really where I see the aha moments and the moments that are just so exciting for me and the entire family is are these moments that are embedded in play that we never even planned were going to happen. And just going with that and then celebrating these things. And I really do think because I've been doing this 20 years, that you do flex that muscle. Over time, you are going to feel more comfortable Kind of, I always say it's like being a detective, right? You're in the moment, you're completely immersed in the session. I think that's number one. The thing is, I do go in with like a data sheet of different skills I want to target, but then I always have a section that's just like spontaneous communication, you know, whatever it works for your learner. And I'm always writing so many things down. And you're absolutely right, where a lot of the language that really occurs spontaneously is happening during play. And parents get so worried about things being structured? Should we do it at the table? Should we... you know? Because there's so much information online now, which I don't know is good or bad. Because I remember 20 years ago when I started in the field and I was working in non-public programs, you know, there really was like no information, right? That's probably why I went rogue and got my BCBA and all the things because I wanted to learn how to help those students that were hard to learn. But now parents have so much information and you could meet a speech therapist that would say, you know, you should... You know, have the student sitting. I actually had one speech therapist was seeing a client and they had the patient told me, well, they were having my child sit in a high chair and he was strapped in. And this wasn't a child that was working on feeding therapy or working on didn't have a praxia or anything like that. And I thought to myself, okay, that's really wrong. But how do I like, you know, say that nicely and, you know, all these things? But 
that's kind of what you're dealing with, right? Is that some you could deal with a BCBA that thinks one way or a speech therapist and then somebody that's totally different. So I think a huge part of doing this type of social interaction is also kind of communicating what you're doing to the team. And I know we were going to talk about that, but do you have any any thoughts on that? Like, how do we let people know that this is what we're doing and, and how it's so important? Yes. So <laughs> there's a, a few different things that come up. For me, if I was trying to help the team see why we're doing like a more play-based approach and it's more naturalistic. First, I would try to find specific excerpts from the book itself, from the the Early Start Denver Model book. I actually have a, a webinar too on early intervention that's free on our website or it can be purchased for CEs where I go through examples of a lot of this. So I usually will send that to people and say, yeah. here, you know, watch this and see like why we're talking about it in this way. And I, for me, at least at this point, I think there's more research supporting naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions than the structured EIBI. People need to start differentiating between the folklore that's passed down in our field and others of like, this is how my supervisor did it. So it must be evidence-based and empirically supported. And then they never actually look to see if it is. There's a lot of things that people just do, whether it's different prompting strategies or data collection or being at the table, that when you look up the research, it's really not there. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention research, and there's tons of studies now, right? So I'd be curious to know why they're focused on the structure. What is that? Why do they think it's so important? And try to discuss it with them from a place of curiosity and learning their perspective to better understand what they're coming in with so I can help them hopefully see other options. Like I don't want to argue with them and be defensive about play-based being better, (laughs) even though it, it generally... I mean, there's a time and a place. Like there's, I've had certain clients where... If we try to do play-based and that's it right away, they would have learned nothing, mm-hmm. right? So you have to develop the critical thinking to see what, how much time needs to be allocated with like structure and how much time needs to be allocated with play. Conversely, I've also had children where if you tried to sit them at a table and do structured teaching right away, uh-huh, no, that wasn't going to happen either, <laughs> right? right? So anyone who comes in with like, I only do this, I only do play-based, I only do structured, that's the bigger issue to me. Mm-hmm. It's like figuring out why is one of such value and how can you actually pinpoint what the individual child needs and then pull in based on the research and your own clinical experience, what combination would work best for that particular child? Yeah, I love that idea too. And with with some of my younger learners, I definitely will do mostly play-based. But then I had one student that was like working on matching. And so then he did have like a little table. And so then we would do that. And then we would come back to the area so you you do think like maybe a mix that it's just very individualized, right? Based on the student and their and their learning profile. Yes. And I have in the early intervention webinar, there's this really crude, I'm not very good at visuals, like decision tree thing that I made based <laughs> again off my own experience, but it talks about different skills I work on. And I have like a general like list that I start with, especially for early learners. And then depending on how things are going, we'll get more structured or less structured. So I have come up with like my own decision-making process. And that's what I would encourage people to do is like, again, based on your own clinical experience and the individual child, like make sure you have a way because you don't want to be flying by the seat of your pants Mm -hmm. entirely. Like you need to be able to explain why you're doing what you're doing and having some type of, you know, thing on paper where you've outlined these are the reasons. And that can be easier to explain to parents or other people on the team. I'm not just pulling this. Like this Mm -hmm. is the process I'm going through. 
And these are where the decision points come in so that everyone can see that there is a plan. It's not just one or one thing. Like I'm not just following this kid around with no uh, goals or anything. And, you know, I'm not just a glorified babysitter. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah. You have to advocate for what you're doing. I I like that and being able to explain it. I feel like that is something that comes with age too. Well, I feel like I'm old now. Like I've been doing this 20 years. So I keep saying (laughs) I'm seasoned, but some of these things like a long time ago, I'd be like, I don't know. But, you know, sometimes working in a non-public program, we would have special education directors. And, you know, here I am 23 talking about applied behavior analysis and why it's helping this kid who's 18, who's never communicated, learn how to use the device. And so I think those kind of being in these extremely contentious situations when when I was 23 kind of helped me, you know, hone that skill. So (laughs) I think over time that helps. So really good information. I love that. So let me ask you though. So it does sound like Early Start Denver model. And I do have the book. I haven't read the entire thing. But so it really is a one-on-one situation. Is it? Do they talk about working in a dyad? Because I could see a speech therapist, maybe school-based... You know, Most school-based therapists cannot see kids one-on-one unless it is a learner who has more high support needs. But you know, an outpatient therapist could, maybe a, a special ed teacher during table time. I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? Because people may be listening and thinking like, well, I don't know if I could do this because it's just one-on-one. And what are your thoughts on that? They have it structured. So the book mostly focuses on it being a one-on-one, but they talk about how it can be in multiple settings. And they do have research published on a group version of the model. I haven't read it because I don't typically work in group, but it's out there. It's generally the same when I did the advanced workshop. They talked about it quite a bit because there were a few behavior analysts and they were wanting to know more about the group piece. But they have I think their own manuals and research articles specifically on that. And they also have research specific to just parents, like parent implementation that they've been Mm -hmm. doing around where they've pulled in the research from coaching and training parents, just broadly speaking, and Mm -hmm. applied that with... It's basically like they take classes and then go home and implement what they're learning and then come back and Mm -hmm. they measure the progress of the clients that way. And they're not getting additional intervention. It's just with the parents. Oh, okay. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. So great information today. I always end the podcast, if we have time, with a, a big question here at the end, which I would love to hear your answer. What is the most important piece of advice that you'd want to pass along to parents or professionals? It could be about ABA or communication or what we talked about today. But what's a big idea that you'd like to share? (laughs) I couldn't pick just one. So I have two. Okay. The first is that traditional ABA assessments. I know most a lot of people listening are speech language, but if you've looked at the BBMAP or ABLES or similar even speech assessments, they don't typically break communication down enough, at least for autism. Early Start Denver model does a much better job of looking at pre-communicative and pre-linguistic skills and really just building up that connected, trusting relationship. My biggest piece of advice though is learners don't technically have to develop neurotypical communication. We need to stop putting the onus on our clients to communicate like we do without joining them and meeting them where they are. We are all more comfortable, less stressed, and learn better when we are accepted. So we need to make sure we're focusing on joining our clients and building up communication based on how they are currently communicating, what their current preferences are. Tell them, I got you. I will do my best to understand you. Imitate what they're doing. And then at the same time, we can be modeling. And by the way, this is how other people do it. This is how I communicate as a neurotypical and see what happens. Generally, what what people are starting to find is that 
it goes so much better. I have, I've seen so many situations, especially with teens and adults where people are so frustrated because they don't have a communication method. And then you observe them and you're like, they're communicating so many things right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what do you mean? They don't have it. No, they don't have a neurotypical communication method, but they are communicating. Right. And to just imagine their lives, like going 15, 20 years of people constantly following them around and trying to get them to do things differently when we could just easily join and again, go based off where they are. And which is what we do with babies, by the way, no one's trying to get a baby to say full sentences. Mm-hmm. And I'm not comparing adults to babies right. or anything like that. But I'm just saying like, we have that flexibility. Right. Um, or if someone had like a, like an obvious physical injury, like, you know, if they're using a, you know, the device where it's like, they're using motor things, like they're, everyone says, well, who's the guy? Why can't I think of his name? You know, <laughs> in the wheelchair. That, oh, Stephen Hawkins. Yes, like Stephen Hawkins. Everyone knew he was brilliant, right? Right. But right. nobody questioned anything around right. his communication methods, right? Right. So, but if if he had just if if nobody knew of that brilliance ahead of time, mm-hmm. there probably would have been a lot more judgment passed. Like mm-hmm. we don't have to wait for these like you know super brilliant situations to to be flexible and modify what we're expecting for communication. We can meet people where they are and really be supportive of that. And that I'm not saying like that we would never help people learn how others communicate, but I think we're doing it backwards. We're trying to come in and force people to do things in a way that how we, what makes sense to us mm-hmm. instead of trying to understand them and get that made sense of first and then shift it over. So I know that was kind of a long answer, but... <laughs> no, I love that. That's great. And that's how I see the world too. Yeah. That I just... That's my wish for everybody is that they would just be able to spontaneously communicate in a way that makes sense for them. So yeah, I love that. So profound. Such a great episode. I love connecting with you. Where can people find out more about you and your work? We have... A, we're kind of in a lot of places. So I would say the best too... I mean, obviously check out the show notes, but our website is collective.dobettermovement.us. And then on Instagram, we have underscore do better collective and then underscore. But we have Facebook, YouTube, all of those things as well. But those are where I post the most stuff. Awesome. Great. And if you're listening, make sure that you join us um, in the month of January. We are going to launch our toddler course again. We are going to open it back up. So I'm super excited about that. Make sure that you remember to keep things fun and functional. And I'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye, Megan. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. It was amazing to listen to Dr. Megan Miller share with us about the Early Start Denver model. I have that book on my desk. I'm halfway through with it. And this podcast has wanted to make me finish it. I just can't wait to implement all of those strategies in my therapy. I wanted to take this time to thank you for listening to the podcast. Make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. A new episode drops all about autism and communication every single Tuesday. I also wanted to take this time to read one of our reviews. It means so much to me here at the podcast when you write a review. I love to hear your feedback and I could read your review here at the end of Autism Outreach. This one says, interesting perspective and great information. 
I am an SLP in private practice and the mother of a daughter that has received in-home ABA therapy for 13 years. Having the knowledge base and formal training of both fields has to provide such a unique perspective. I love your idea for functional real-life approaches. Also, after doing almost a year of teletherapy, I could definitely use some new ideas and you have given me a few to try. I'm looking forward to your up coming podcast. Thanks so much for that review and for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.